I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Does voiceover kill the killer edition? It's Wednesday, November 8th, 2023. On today's show, The Killer, it's a dark existential noir from director David Fincher. It stars Michael Fassbender in the title role. And then Letterboxd is to movies what Goodreads is to books. We discuss what some people say is the only good social media site now going. And finally, the wonderful Chris Malamphy joins us to discuss his new book, Old Town Road, about the Lil Nas X song that was not only a huge, huge, an unprecedentedly huge hit, but also a cultural watershed. But first, uh, joining me today is Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Greetings. All righty then. Uh, let's make a show, right? Let's do it. All right. Well, The Killer is a dark thriller from director David Fincher. He of Fight Club and Seven and on and on, tons of movies. This one's based on the French graphic novel of the same name and stars Michael Fassbender as an ice-cold assassin who, after a hit goes wrong, finds himself caught in an international manhunt. The movie also stars Arliss Howard, Charles Parnell, and you get some Tilda Swinton in a supporting role. Uh, Netflix hasn't released a clip of the movie yet, but why don't we listen to a bit of the trailer? You're going to hear Michael Fassbender as the killer describing his own indifference to human life. Let's, uh, Let's have a listen. I find music a useful distraction. A focus tool. Keeps the inner voice from wandering. This is what it takes. My process is purely logistical. If I'm effective, it's because of one simple fact. I don't give a You know, it's funny i have to sit at this segment because i haven't seen the movie for various scheduling reasons but in fact i i could because i've seen it a thousand times before but that said i'm still going to cede the microphone to isaac butler isaac of course is a old-time friend of the program he's also the author of the method how the 20th century learned how to act a magnificent history of method acting isaac welcome back to the show hey thanks for having me steven Isaac, I hear you have some very definite opinions about this movie. I'm going to hand the microphone over to you and let you guys talk about it. Yeah, I should say that I saw this movie like purely as a civilian, not to prep for this and not to write about it. I bought a ticket and I had a highly enjoyable time at the theater. I I think it's interesting that the source material is a a French graphic novel because I think you can really see, uh, and were I hosting the show this week, this would probably be my recommendation, the incredible influence of Jean-Pierre Melville's film Le Samurai, um, which is also a movie about a hitman sitting around and then occasionally killing people. Um, I don't think the audio for that trailer really does the movie justice, except that the movie is totally dominated by voiceover. There's like four speaking roles in the whole movie. And I would say, I mean, I think it's about 90 minutes long. I think 70 of those minutes have Michael Fassbender talking in voiceover on them. Um, The movie is like a procedural. It's not exactly a thriller. You're sort of just like watching this guy go through the day-to-day of his life. It's just that the life happens to be killing people which makes it odd. Like it's odder than I think that trailer kind of sets it out to be. Um, for me, the pleasures of it are similar to the the pleasures the character takes in his job are the pleasures of craft. The sound design is unbelievable and is probably the reason to see it in the theater and not wait until it comes out on Netflix. Um, the acting, particularly Tilda Swinton, 
is is really expertly done. Um, I don't know that you're ever in suspense for a single moment of the movie at all, but to me, just like being able to like take a warm bath in that craft was really great. I actually kind of prefer Fincher in the low key genre movie mode of the game or Panic Room or this film. I you know he's actually much more consistent at these than in his big statement films like The Terrible Mank. Um, and so like I, I actually really enjoyed it, but I have a feeling Dana has a contrary take. Yeah, I'm surprised to hear you so positive, Isaac, because we discussed this movie just casually before. And well, I guess that your problems with it had more to do with the ending and things that we can't spoil in this yes, in this yes. conversation. Um, but I would go so far as to say I hated this movie, really hated it, <laughs> even though I admired a lot of the things that you just cited about it. The experience of watching it was not a pleasurable bath. It is not 90 minutes long. It's two hours long. It feels longer than that. And Oh, where do I begin? I mean, I think that the main problem for me, yes, it has a lot of style and a lot of craft. The sound design was the first thing I wrote down in my notes. Also, the score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who have been doing David Fincher's scores forever and who really grew with his sensibility. I mean, Fincher has a sensibility, right? He can he can make, as you say, a nice, tightly crafted, beautiful looking and sounding genre movie. And I really liked Gone Girl. And uh, what are some other David Fincher murder movies? Uh, Seven, which is written by the same screenwriter who wrote this movie, The Killer. Those movies may not be among my favorite Fincher movies or my favorite movies, period, but they're undeniably tense, suspenseful, well-crafted genre stories, right? So I went in thinking, well, at least this will be that. And I mean... Okay, this the resemblance to the samurai. Let's start with the the thing that it doesn't resemble to Jean-Pierre Mieville's 1967 classic. It doesn't have any suspense. The the the, the samurai is a chase movie, right? It's about this Well, it's a chase movie where the protagonist lies on a chaise lawn smoking a cigarette for 50% of the film. <laughs> well, okay, it's it's a chase movie that plays with the idea, but there is an actual antagonist chasing yes, the yes. samurai guy. Yes. Right? Totally, totally. Yes. There are yes. scenes of cops in the metro chasing Alain Delon, and there are moments where you think he might get caught. There's a, this movie takes place in a very strange logic-free vacuum where for some reason it's incredibly important to the handlers of Michael Fassbender that they go after him for messing up this one job. And, you know, attempt to kill him and beat up his girlfriend and do all these horrible things. And then yet for the rest of the movie, he's somehow wandering scot-free across the globe, (laughs) getting revenge on all the people who tried to kill him without anybody appearing to be after him. So that in itself is such a huge logic hole that it's just it was really hard for me to get up any mojo about the killing. But that aside... I mean, I just feel like, let me come down on the side of Aristotle here. Like, can we get a little bit of unity of time, place, and action or some catharsis or like a sense that the character changes in any way? I mean, why do we have to just hear him repeating literally in the exact same words, his nihilist creeds on the on the voiceover the entire time without him learning or changing in any way? Like, he I changes just, I at assume- the end. He changes at the end. I mean, maybe we can't talk about the end. I will, I have to also add to the plot holes that he uses a succession of aliases that are the male stars of very, very popular sitcoms. So all of his fake passports are like Felix Unger, Lou Grant, Archie Bunker, Sam Malone, which is like, what? I mean, for one thing, in a real world, that would be a perfect way for him to be tracked, right? You're monitoring all these different plane flights around the world and you say, hmm, there seem to be people with names from 70s sitcoms traveling on every one of these flights. You cut to Chris Cooper back in a room full of TV screens and they're like, sir, sir. Jerry Seinfeld just (laughs) logged a flight from Paris to Dubai. And they're like, it's him. Activate Jeremy Renner. I did love, though, that he put an umlaut over the U in Archibald Bunker. That was yeah. that was a good joke. Julia, what about you? What, what are, Where do you fall between the two of us? I think I actually am squarely in between you two. I, it was two hours long. I found that the hours moved pretty briskly, just in the tension of the process and the mystery of what exactly he's doing next and which city is he going to go to and what's going on. And each different location kind of has its own tone and rhythm and you're watching him practice this craft. But I sort of think the movie fell apart for me at the point of like, what is the point of this? Like it it felt, you know, mildly interesting, very handsome, very, very beautiful. Um, yes, mostly quite well acted. 
but like, what? Why are we here? What's going on? Like, uh, the the voiceover is kind of ridiculous, and and I think you do have an arc for this character because the voiceover is his like desperate self justification that this is a practicable way to live, and you're watching him kind of fall apart and yeah, not live by his code and discover that this is an untenable way to live, and um, I think. At the end, he makes several choices that demonstrate that supposed arc. But it's almost like too subtle or something. or And also like, I don't know, man. Again, these killers, just not that interested in killing. It seems pretty easy in my life so far to like just go through life not killing people, not that obsessed with what it would be like to kill people, just not like not the most emotionally interesting problem. I mean, I think there have been some... You know, there's a line of thinking about the movie, which is that this is the auteur kind of making fun of himself and his obsession with craft and whether his craft is meaningless, which I think we've, I feel like we've seen this. I think I've made this argument that that's what Once Upon a Time is for Quentin Tarantino and um, what Henry Sugar is for, for Wes Anderson. And maybe I just find Fincher's takes less interesting and marvelous to watch him make the same point about himself if in fact that's what he's doing but it's like hard to the whole thing is so wry and ironical in a way it's a very poker-faced film yeah i don't know i just like what are we doing here kind of i agree that the purpose of the repeating voiceover in the second half is ironic that it becomes the opposite you know, in the first part, he's like saying this stuff. And in the second part, we hear him say this stuff as he does the complete opposite over and over and over again of what he claims his creed is. Um, you know, Dana and I first talked about this movie before she had seen it over lunch with a mutual friend. And he said, you know, the movie has no engine because there's no antagonist. And and I actually agree with that. But to, to me, if if it has no engine, the car is still really beautiful. And I just didn't mind spending some time sitting in that in that car, I guess. I don't know. Part of it is that Michael Fassbender, you know, really demonstrates his strengths as a, as a leading man here, because it's not like the character has a lot of expressive (laughs) moments, you know, like Alain Delon, Le Samurai. It's a lot of him just kind of staring at people, but I just still found him really compelling. And I'm also excited that unlike many actors of his generation, he's allowing himself to age. I mean, to the extent that the movie works, he he makes it work. And I think his physicality does. That's part of why I think the voiceover is so excessive. I mean, I always have a problem with voiceovers that do anything more than lightly frame a movie. <laughs> you know, I really, I, there's some great movies, movies I admire a lot that I wish I wish had either no voiceover or less voiceover. And this movie really airs far in the direction of, of too much, especially given that he has these mantras that he repeats over and over again that are not exactly Zen koans in their complexity. <laughs> like, we get it. You know, he's just... I don't know if we can't remember what his exact koans are, but they all have to do with his control and his tightness and so forth. And his body, Fassbender's body already communicates all that. I love, for example, the, the, theme that he keeps on doing yoga, you know, that he wants to keep his heart rate down for his kills. And he has this whole method, which involves listening to the Smiths in earphones. So there's a lot of Smiths on the soundtrack and and doing yoga poses. And Fassbender completely gets this sort of, you know, this strange mix of sort of wellness culture and, uh, and you know, killer instinct that he functions on, that Fassbender's character functions on. So that's all great. But once again, I come back to just the character to me is a set of, of, of traits that are displayed before us, explained by the character himself, and then repeated over and over. And I don't think that they really change. I know Julia does, and we're not going to spoil here, so I won't get into how I think there's just a completely flat arc for this character. But I will say, this is a hint about the ending, that when... We know that he goes through this chain of people, right, that commissioned the hit that he messed up and that they tried to kill him for. When he gets to the top of that chain and gets to the person who actually commissioned the hit, so it's sort of like, you know, ground zero for this this disaster that's occurred in his life, I don't understand the interaction between them or why it goes the way it goes. So <laughs> if either of you off mic want to explain that to me, I would be thrilled. I also don't totally understand it, and I don't think the movie totally earns the turn that it suggests. I will say that I love that the richest asshole of them all is wearing a Sub Pop t-shirt. 
I thought that was part of the handsome d- design of this. He's <laughs> like a well, little indie some, rock asshole. <laughs> yeah, there's some funny social commentary in the design of the movie. And I've seen some smart critics writing about how this movie is sort of a critique of, of alienated late capitalism. And there's certainly a lot of moments that we see how it's the soulless infrastructure of the world economy that allows this anonymous killer to move through it, right? I mean, moments that he is like um, uh, being a sniper outside of an abandoned WeWork yeah. Office, That's definitely right? my feeling about it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and like moments that he's just sort of clocking in and at remote Amazon locations where nobody knows who you are or cares who you are. That's an interesting theme. I don't think the movie takes any of that stuff as far as it could. You know, Dana, I feel like we have finished this segment with ruthless efficiency and uh, a cold <laughs> calculating nature. I'm going to go do some yoga and keep my heart rate down. But uh, maybe listeners, after they've seen the film, if they want to see the film, they can uh, get in touch and let us know what they think. I just hope our execution is less boring than uh, the unnamed killer, Archibald Bunker. It's at least shorter. <laughs> All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we discuss business. Dana, what do you uh, what do we have? Stephen, we have an extra item of business this week. In addition to telling you about our Slate Plus segment, which I will in a moment, I wanted to tell you about a new venture at Slate, the Slate Shop. It's an online store that supports small businesses while supporting Slate's journalism. At the Slate Shop, you can find products like hand-poured candles and home pasta makers, and you can also buy Slate-branded merch like a tote bag or a pen or a hat. So if you want to support Slate and maybe get some fun little holiday gifties at the same time, you can head to shop.slate.com where if you're a new customer, you get 10% off. Once again, that's shop.slate.com. Our second item of business today is to just tell you about our Slate Plus segment. We came up with this idea after talking about Killers of the Flower Moon, which I know I, for one, really, really loved. But as I say in my review on Slate, I think it really could have used an intermission and it would have been both a generous gesture on the filmmaker's part toward the audience's backs and bladders. And also, I think could have sort of felt like an old school roadshow big movie release, which the movie sort of is. Uh, Movies have been getting, at least in the public perception, longer and longer recently. We can talk about how statistically that is true, but I would say that experientially we would all agree that popular movies of late have felt like they all tend to be over two and a half hours long. So we're going to talk about long movies. Uh, Do we like them? Do we hate them? When do they feel right? And when do we wish they would just cut to the chase? If you're a Slate Plus member, stay tuned for that conversation at the end of this show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. In exchange for your dollars, you will get ad-free podcasts, bonus content like the extra segment I just described, which many other podcasts have too, and unlimited access to all of the writing and all of the podcasting on Slate. These memberships are really a big part of what helps keep Slate going. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, allons-y. Can anything save social media? I'm glad you asked. Letterboxd is simply put a social media site that people actually like. (laughs) They feel like they get something from it rather than having it slowly detract from the humanity. It's about the movies. Uh, The company's own tagline is what Goodreads is to books. It was started in 2011, but it really, really took off under pandemic conditions. In a period of a year or two during the pandemic, it doubled its user base to 3 million members. It's more than that now. Uh, Dana, let me start with you. This is both a movie story and a social media story. It's gotten a recent bump because Martin Scorsese joined. There is this idea of it as a non-toxic, user-friendly internet community. Um, I'm really interested to hear from you, a movie critic, uh, how you interact with it, how you use it, and whether you find it like a giant box of treats or somehow utterly confounding. Um, what are you discovering? Well, you know, we all started a Letterboxd account to um, to play around with it in advance of this segment. Speak for yourself. I've been on Letterboxd for five years, Ms. Film Critic. Are you serious? Yeah. Wait, you didn't mention that in our in our prep? Okay, then you're going to have a lot more to say about it than me. I thought we were all just joining it anew for this segment. I mean, of course, I've been aware of Letterboxd because it often gets excerpted. I mean, this is part of the point of it, right? On other social media platforms, I don't think I had ever figured out how it worked before, but I've certainly clicked over to the site to read individual reviews that people have linked to, usually by people I know, professional critics. So that was what interested me about actually getting on the site and and messing around with it some, is that, of course, it doesn't primarily exist for professional critics at all. There is a small tranche of, of professional critics who join it and either post you know, links 
or parts of their regular professional reviews or have this whole kind of para existence as a as a social media film critic, you know, doing things um, on their own. Uh, but the vast majority of users, of course, are just people who love movies and watch movies and want to talk about movies with their friends, which is such a great idea for a social media platform. So I have this very divided experience of Letterboxd, which I think just has to do with my very specific, you know, position and situation in life, which is that I think it's a wonderful use of social media and there should be more ways to interact around culture with other people in the way that it's designed. And I have real, really no desire to use it myself and will probably either cancel my account or just let it lie dormant after this discussion. Because as I think I said when we talked about first doing this topic, to me it's a little bit like why buy the cow when the milk's free, <laughs> you know, that expression. I mean, since I already have a place where I index my thoughts about the movies I see, which is Slate.com, I don't really feel the need to maintain a letterbox. But if I were at a different phase of life, had a different job, I mean, there certainly would have been moments that I would have I would have loved using this interface. It also, I will say, is for a slightly different type of critic and thinker than I think of myself as in that it's very big on lists. It has star rankings. You know, it's not only about that because there's plenty of room as well for just, you know, interpretation and subjective interaction. But it definitely is for the kind of person who likes to keep a spreadsheet of every movie they see. And that's not really ever been me. As someone who literally keeps a spreadsheet of every movie she sees, I feel like I have to seize that segue. Um, so I I cannot front like I'm a true letterboxed head. I took a spin around the site like four or five years ago, set up an account, found it to be an incredibly pleasing place, like an anachronistic place on the internet, a kind place on the internet, a user-friendly place on the internet a place on the internet that did not seem overly interested in doing horrible things to monetize my attention or inflaming its audience to engage them. However, perhaps because it was not inflaming my engagement, I didn't stay that engaged. I had a lot of fun clicking around and being like, I saw this movie, I saw this movie, I saw this movie, I saw this movie, five stars. Like the interface is really fun. Like you look at the posters and you can click the little eye to say that you've watched it. Like it's just... It's a lot more fun than my Google spreadsheet with tabs for books and movies and whatever else, which I sometimes update and sometimes don't. I'm actually pretty religious about updating the books one, but I actually kind of feel like this podcast is my spreadsheet of movies I've seen. Like, I don't see that many movies that are not for the purpose of this podcast. So um, anyway, I had a lot of fun setting up my account and going boop, 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 boop. But I don't go back there or hang out there or put my own thoughts about my movies there because like you, Dana, I put them here. Um, I did take a stab at writing a review of a movie on my account and in preparation for this segment, something I had never done before. Um I don't know that I've ever tried to write a review of a movie, Dana. It seems hard, your job. (laughs) Like, I've obviously written reviews of other things. Anyway, I tried to capture how much I hated Avatar The Way of Water, and I didn't really do a very good job, although I only gave it about eight minutes, which is probably not um, what you would recommend as the recipe for successful film review writing, I would imagine. Uh, Anyway, I, like, feel very delighted by the user interface and very delighted that another set of people, including, like, frequent guests, Jamel Bowie and Nadira Goff. Like there's a lot of folks I know and whose taste and critical chops I love and respect who spend a lot of time there. Um, but it's just not, I just don't have bandwidth for that many. That it, it doesn't meet a need probably like you, Dana, because I have this show. So um, anyway, I respect it and I am a longtime member, but I can't say I'm an engaged user. Yeah, I mean, so I'm new to it completely. I scarcely knew it existed until we, you know, talked about doing it as a topic on the show. I guess there are sort of, for me, two kinds of ways of interacting with opinions about film. And this one sits so uncomfortably in the middle distance between the two. I just don't see how I could engage with it in in a long-term way. The first is... There's someone who, whose sensibility, like Dana's, has been developed over time in dialogue with a reading public, i.e. the critic, right? The authoritative critic with the platform. And then the other are the people actually in your life, you know, who you respect and 
enjoy having a two-way conversation with after having both seen a movie or a TV show. And, you know, Jamel Bowie is just so predictably incredibly good at this format, as is Nadira. It's not that. It's just that how would you ever navigate the cacophony of opinions, many of which are engaging, clever, funny, you know, because of their sheer abundance in some sense, right? Like, it, it, there's no limiting principle to it. If you can't get lost on it, I don't see how you could use it in some sense. And so I had fun with it for a little while. Like, I wanted to see what is the community like of people who, like me, thought the Jennifer Lawrence, you know, sex com, no hard feelings, was actually like a really good, poignant, and thoughtful movie disguised as a piece of commercial raunch. And it's like, they're out there. I think it's great that like Arlo from, uh, you know, Eugene, Oregon sees the movie in the same way that I see it. But the tininess of that satisfaction dissipates so quickly. I found myself moving on. But you know, the tininess of that satisfaction, you know, just finding somebody out there who agrees with you, that does kind of get at what Julia was calling the sort of charmingly early internet feel. I, you know, I was not a person who did MySpace or any of those things. I mean, I was just the wrong generation for it. But this kind of feels like if you're Arlo, Arlo in Eugene, Oregon, you know, maybe that's how you start your career writing about culture. Or it's how you meet your best friend or your girlfriend. And there are some nice stories in the in the documents we were reading, the articles about Letterboxd, about, you know, marriages that have taken place and people who met on Letterboxd. It's certainly because it is a little bit more of a shelter and 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 genre specific or medium specific community uh it's it does seem like a an easier place to find sort of like spirits you know and people who want want to discuss things with you i think if i were younger if i were a generation younger and not a professional critic but just as interested in movies as i was as a person in my 20s this might have been a good sort of starter place for the internet and that's a strange thing to to discover for the first time in 2023 after all we've discovered about social media so mm. maybe this is just me restating my original point like i'd love that letterbox exists and it it seems like a very well designed interface for exactly the specific thing that it's trying to do and so i see why it matters to people uh but I don't think that it's it's a place that I will probably be spending a lot of time. Yeah, fair enough. This this raises a question I'd love to ask both of you, but Julia, I'll, p- I'll pivot to you. Someone really beautifully described it as it, uh, letterbox can seem like a million small tributaries without a river. I grew up in a world dominated, cultural landscape dominated by rivers, and the tributaries were just that. You know, the relatively trivial, ignorable entities or something. I mean. I, is it just a function of age that that as and as someone who grew up in a world land cultural landscape dominated by rivers that it there's something overwhelming about a about a cultural landscape just dominated by tributaries without the sort of central authority of a critic or you know just that sheer multitude of voices somehow um I found very hard to wend my way between well. I guess I don't experience it as a loss in the same way. I I think my main takeaway from Letterboxd is that if you manage something intentionally and not purely for profit, you can create like a positive social space online. Like I feel like we are at this post-social moment of of the big social networks of the 20 teens crashing and burning around us and seeming like slash actually being incredibly influential on the world, mostly in negative ways. Although, as you know, I think there are some positive ways too. you know, I think you, we are micro generally somewhat different you guys and me and also you guys from each other. But like I grew up in, there still is a monoculture but there is an alternative culture that is very specifically cultivating your attention, right? The sort of alternative concept of the 90s. And now there's no more alternative because everything is alternative, right? There's no, you, you don't pick between the two binaries. Um, and I think the comfort level with that and the notion that expertise and authority can come from all over the place is largely a good thing. The thing that I like is seeing people play with criticism, right? Like it's it's kind of um, and being playful in their response to things in a way that is true to whatever they thought of the movie they saw, but that is also like engineered for attention and discourse 
in some of the same ways that people tried to engineer like a good tweet or a engaging Facebook post, but that feel really innocent and charming because the stakes are what you think of this movie and what movies do you like? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, so, you know, some of the re- the reviews that have gone viral are kind of like almost meme reviews uh, of, uh, that are making kind of sharp little memeable points about popular movies. There's a, there's one about fight club. So I don't know. No, I did not experience it as a loss. I experienced it as like a purposeful evolution of the democratization of voices that the internet brings us. Um, and, and kind of a hopeful beacon for the idea that with intentional management, the internet can take a non-garbage path. Julia, that was the lovely answer I was fishing for with my nonsense question. Beautifully done. All right. It's letterboxed. That's letterboxed with a D slapped onto the end of it. You probably know that already. If you have a strong feeling about it, let us know. Shoot us an email. All right, let's move on. In the spirit of 33 and a third, the wonderful series of small books about iconic record albums, there's now a similar-ish series about singles, single songs from Duke University Press, the single series. Fittingly, they asked, this is an inspired pairing, they asked the great critic, slate critic and chartologist Chris Melanthi to write about Old Town Road, the song by Lil Nas X. Chris Melanthi, of course, is the host of the Hit Parade podcast and a wonderful critic. Chris, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Steve. I appreciate it. You are a supremely uh, old friend of this program. It's great to have you on to talk about this. Will you introduce the song for us a little bit? Tell listeners maybe in the context of what you're saying, what to listen for. Sure. So the song we're talking about, the book is called Old Town Road, and it's named after the song of the same name by Lil Nas X, which was recorded in late 2018, released in the final weeks of 2018, and went crazily viral on the then fairly new site TikTok. Uh, Think of a time when TikTok was new. That's what was happening in 2018. And it was kind of the first TikTok meme to really blow up massively, which then had a knock-on effect on this song. This song, which, by the way, is built out of a nine-inch nail sample. That's what that twang is. It's an instrumental track, an obscure instrumental track by Trent Reznor from the aughts that Lil Nas X, Montero Lamar Hill from Atlanta, Georgia, took one listen to and thought, this kind of sounds like country music. And he did his most corn-pone accent, uh, you know, talking about uh, he's got the horses in the back and wrangle around my booty and, uh, you know, all sorts of fun and intentionally funny goofball lyrics. Um, and uh, because this was just so much fun to dance to, he threw it on social media, Twitter, TikTok, all over the place, and it really blew up. And before you knew it, in uh, the early months of 2019, it actually got onto the Billboard charts. So maybe we should just listen to original flavor, Old Town Road by Lil Nas X. Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse to the Old Town Road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I'm gonna I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached. Head is mad at black, got the boots black to match. Riding on a horse, ha, you can whip your horse. I've been in a valley, you ain't been up off that porch now. Can't nobody. So that's Old Town Road, and of course, a big reason why. I was asked to write this book is that Old Town Road to this day in the fall of 2023 holds the record for most weeks at number one in Billboard Hot 100 history. It stayed at number one, thanks in part to a Billy Ray Cyrus remix, which we should talk about for 19 weeks that broke a record that it held for 23 years by the Mariah Carey Boys to Men song One Sweet Day, which had been number one for 16 weeks. One sweet day. Nobody could break that record until Lil Nas X broke it in 2019. And four years later, despite a couple of challengers, he still holds that record. And that is the the chart angle is part of the reason why I wrote this book. Chris, speaking of the reason you wrote this book, this was the first question that came to mind upon hearing that you were writing on Old Town Road was, 
Did you immediately know upon thinking about writing on a single that this would be the single? Because reading your book, it makes it seem like this is sort of the divinely designed for Chris Melanfi project in that it involves not just music history and music criticism, but um, but chartology, right? Which is your your special angle on music criticism and the ways in which Lil Nas X hacked the charts and, you know, what a chart was at the moment that this song broke compared to what it had been throughout the history of, you know, Billboard song charting. Uh, was Did that angle immediately occurred to you like I've got to do Old Town Road for that reason or was it was it one of a few different singles that you you chewed over in your mind first your instinct is right the answer is the former and it's very close to what you're saying because when I was approached shout out to Joshua Clover and Emily Lordy who are the co-curators of this new series singles when I was approached by Emily Lordy in the summer of 2020 a year after this song was a hit and asked if I wanted to do it Immediately, I just knew I had to do it. It was their idea based on all the writing, frankly, all the writing I'd done for Slate. If if you all have been following my Why Is This Song Number One series, all you know, low these many years, in 2019 for Slate, I wrote a whole lot about Old Town Road as it was breaking chart records. And they read all that, Emily and Joshua, and said, we'd love for you to write about this. And the instant, to answer your question, Data, the instant she asked me, you know, frankly, a book project on top of my already insane schedule was the last thing I needed. But I said, oh, God, yeah, I have to do this because it really is the perfect prism. This, to me, is why the book exists to talk about not just chart feats like this, but the history of the charts, the history of genre, how genre is conflated with race, how, you know, country and hip hop have collided with each other. It, it's a prism through which you can explore so much history, the history of viral songs, internet songs. It really is kind of the perfect prism through which to tell that story. Well, first of all, congratulations on the book on Pub Day. I, Thank you. It is always fun to consume your work. As you know, we are big fans of Hit Parade in my household. And uh, and I love your writing and have loved it for many years since we were uh, colleagues at Slate. But it's so fun to read you in book mode. It's like very tight. It's a really good read. If on this podcast you are a fan of Chris's work, you should like get this book and read it. Because I, if you had <laughs> asked me point blank, do you want to read a book about this single? I would have been like, nah, I don't know. I like mostly read mysteries, whatever. But it's like really brisk. So from from the editor brain in Julia, nice job. Um, Thank you. But but one of the things that's really interesting to me about it is it's it strikes me that it has been a very interesting and eventful few years for country and race since this song came out and stormed the charts. So I'm interested to hear you share with our listeners a little bit about what it was like and what you thought about um, the the kind of race and country aspects of this song through the lens of where pop culture has wended since it came out. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, one thing I could not have predicted when I turned in the first manuscript of this in 2021 and edited it in 2022 was that in 2023, the charts were going to be as dominated by crossover country songs, including country songs like Morgan Wallen's Last Night that are replete with hip hop tropes. But that said, the history of the collision between first R&B in country and then hip-hop in country is a long and interesting one. And, you know, in the book, I point to all sorts of antecedents, not least the fact that let's not forget, lest we forget, because country is often marketed as the whitest of all genres, that country at the root is based on African and African-American music. I say African because, for example, the banjo is basically a, an African instrument. So when you, as I talk about in the book, when you talk about the history of country music itself, which is now about a century old, dating back to the 1920s, you're really talking about an art form that has R&B baked into it. You can also touch on what happened to Ray Charles in the 1960s when he recorded an album that right there in the title is called Modern Sounds in Country and Western Music. And this is a bit lost to time, but in 1962, that was the basically the most, uh, the highest charting album of the year. It spent 14 weeks at number one on Billboard's album chart, and it spun off a raft of singles that hit the pop and the R&B charts. But even though he was recording country standards like You Are My Sunshine and I Just Can't Stop Loving You, these songs didn't touch the country chart in 1962 at all, despite the title of his album and despite the fact that it was the best-selling album in America for months. Oh, 
Similarly, when you flash forward to the 21st century, you see all sorts of artists, whether it's, you know, rappers who are playing with country tropes like Outkast on the song Rosa Parks, who have like a hoedown breakdown in the middle of the song. Or you talk about country artists who are playing with hip-hop tropes, like we talked about him on Culture Gab Fest just a couple months ago, Jason Aldean, who one of his big hits back in 2010 is uh, a cover of a song called Dirt Road Anthem, in which he raps the verses and sings the chorus. He does both parts himself. Jason Aldean rapping. Back in the day, Pops Farm was a place to go. Load a truck up, hit the dirt road, jump the barbed wire, spread the word, light the bonfire, and call the girls. This mingling of these two genres is really you can trace it across history it's it's not that new and it seems a little new to us now but you know a, a whole generation of country stars have been banging both forms of music there's a, a lyric i love uh that came out about a decade ago it's uh by uh bubba sparks and colt ford two country guys and on the lyrics of this song they say been doing this for some years y'all so late banging outcast and a little george Strait." so looking here cold beer on a tailgate been doing this for some years y'all so late banging outcast and a little george Strait. hot damn cold ford back with bubba k I love that lyric because it points out that for a generation of folks who grew up listening to country music, they also grew up listening to rap and they don't see those two genres as mutually exclusive from each other. And you're going to see more crossover between them as the years go on. And Old Town Road is kind of a, an apotheosis of that. Chris, I want to I reinforce what Julia was saying. This is a, a triumphant, you know, book length essay is really wonderfully written. Um, and I had that like special bite of conscience, particular, I think, to writers of just wishing over and over again, I'd written, you know, a sentence or a paragraph. And I just have to read this because it conveys, you know, really the brilliance and the synthetic brilliance uh, and elegance of the book. So you say, um, you've just gone on a wonderful riff about how certain iconic songs like Rolling Stone's Day and Alive Smells Like Teen Spirit are in some essential way about themselves. They're they're so new that they almost have to teach us how to listen to them, and they've got a kind of internally generated exuberance of some kind. And then you say, charts, too, are reflexive and self-reinforcing. They are feedback loops that reflect popularity back at an industry eager to make things more popular, to turn once cool things into commonplace things that are then replaced by the next cool thing. Um. I just thought that that was so wonderfully, so pithily put. So in one sense, you have this kind of synthetic process that, as you say, you know, of miscegenation, among many other things, between um, what we think of as a quintessentially white form country and all these, you know, um, other competing black popular forms coming together in this song. At the same time, that paragraph suggests this is also a mirror back to the powers that be in the music industry. What would they have learned from, like, really, as you say, the unprecedented success of this song? First of all, thank you so much for the kind words, Steve. And yeah, you know, I've been saying for years that charts are feedback loops. They reflect popularity back at the industry, and they they help the industry figure out how to make something else more popular. Now, cynically, that means sometimes repeating something to try and jump on a bandwagon. But it also means listening to the audience and figuring out, okay, the audience is moving in this direction, not that direction, and we need to promote things accordingly. Um, you know, you saw it in the 90s when, you know, Garth Brooks became the best-selling performer of the entire decade, not just in country music, but across all genres, you know, suddenly the record industry said, oh, this country music, I guess we need to be promoting this to everybody, including pop fans, because this stuff is selling everywhere. Um, you know, if I can give credit where credit is due on the inspiration for this book, I was very inspired, as I, you know, often am by Carl Wilson and his book, Let's Talk About Love, which I know you guys have talked about on the Culture Gab Fest before, where Carl used this Celine Dion album 
as a springboard for a larger discussion of taste and, you know, what we now call poptimism and, you know, the the sort of high and low culture conflict. I, I just think what Carl did in that book is totally brilliant. And similarly, I was trying to use the story of Lil Nas X as a prism through which to talk about the charts and how they function and how they have evolved. Because, you know, for Lil Nas X, it's a little bit like the conversation I had with you guys a few years ago when Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You went to number one 25 years after it was first recorded. And I basically said to you guys, to understand why this happened, you have to understand how the charts work and how they've changed over 25 years. Lil Nas X's Old Town Road is that story as well. It's like, you know, you have to know that songs now blow up bigger because of streaming, which didn't exist on the charts as recently as 15 years ago. They stay on top longer. They behave differently in the ecosystem. And that is part and parcel of explaining the Old Town Road story. So I I was trying to get all that across much the way Carl brilliantly does in Let's Talk About Love. Let me point people to the book. It's terrific. It's Old Town Road by Chris Malamphy. Chris, we don't have time to get to all of the riches of this book, but we can just say reading it reminds us what an amazing jam this song is, how dense with cultural significance it is, and we didn't even really get to the Billy Ray Cyrus aspect of it. Why don't we go out on the Billy Ray Cyrus remix? down cross town living like a rock star spend a lot of money on my brand new guitar chris as always a huge pleasure man thanks for coming on the show thank you all i really appreciate your feedback on the book and uh, briefly for hit parade listeners the mid-november episode of hit parade which is coming out in a few days is going to be kind of like an audio companion to the book so if you want to learn a little bit more about uh lil nas x and uh Old Town Road, and hopefully whet your appetite for the book. Please listen to the forthcoming episode of Hit Parade. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steve, I have a, a, a hometown endorsement, something from Slate.com that I came across last week that um, that really surprised me and how much I cared about reading it, given how little I had cared about the topic up until then. So the day of Sam Bankman-Fried's uh, courtroom trial, after the verdict came down and it became clear that he might actually have to serve some serious time for what sounds like his absolutely atrocious, uh, you know, many years long scamming of many people with cryptocurrency. I decided I would try to finally understand what what was going on with Sam Bankman-Fried. We've talked about cryptocurrency on the show and had segments on it, but every single time it's sort of like I have to remind myself again what it is, how it works, how the scam works. And so this whole story of, of Sam Bankman-Fried's trial was something I had just been sort of waiting for it to be over. And then I just thought, no, let, let's try to figure it out because it is actually interesting that you know he may have to suffer some consequences. So where did I go? Slate.com. And I realized that Slate.com's coverage of of that trial was fantastic. For one thing, Nitish Pawa, who's been on our show many times, uh, technology and other things, um, focused writer at Slate, was uh, was in the courtroom and was covering the trial from the courtroom. And uh, and his his updates are fantastic. They reminded me a bit of you know Seth Stevenson's updates from the Michael Jackson trial in that they were both you know legally fascinating and just very lively and and well written. Um, so and there's other great coverage as well by Alex Kirshner and other writers on. Slate. So I recommend, and I think there's a whole landing page for it, Slate's coverage of the Sam Bankman-Fried trial and uh, and the aftermath. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm going to go um, gorge myself on those um, as soon as we're done taping. Julia, what do you have? I have a... Is it an endorsement? I guess so. <laughs> we, we went... So we took my sons, as I think I shared on the show, to see Stop Making Sense. And then I took one of them to see the Taylor Swift movie. And so now just like the family activity is concert documentaries. And after I saw um, Killers of the Flower Moon with my husband, we saw that The Last Waltz was being played in theaters this past weekend. So we took my 10-year-olds to The Last Waltz, which is the uh, Scorsese documentary about the final taping of the band um the the kind of legendary 70s rock band that played with all kinds of greats and it's a 
star-studded concert doc. And now that I'm, uh, my family are just concert doc connoisseurs, and that's our entire pastime, <laughs> I would share that it is astounding how different the last waltz is from Stop Making Sense. Obviously, very different bands, very different eras, very different directors, like, but they're very fun and funny to watch as companion pieces and to think about the kind of like r- rigorous, purposeful, tight, inclusive uh, art making of Stop Making Sense versus the just like swaggering peacock show of the, of the, kind of end of a particular male rock star era. Just the, um, somebody out there has no doubt written a PhD on 70s masculinity based on The Last Waltz as the primary text and like, please send it to me. It's so interesting and such an amazing time capsule of the fashion. And Scorsese's direction is really fascinating because he, you know, there's there's an amount of reverence of this, these talented musicians and what they've built. But there is a lot of kind of, in my mind, somewhat lacerating distance or willingness to show, I don't know, kind of the vanity and vulnerabilities of these men, even as it is lionizing their music. So anyway, The Last Waltz, Martin Scorsese, certainly as a time capsule, if not as a entertainment experience and um and also <laughs> got so many compliments from all of the other grown-ups in the room for bringing our 10-year-old to this who were so bored <laughs> so bored <laughs> i can only imagine right <laughs> all right well i'm my endorsement this week is short and sweet the preview for the movie the holdovers which i believe the alexander payne movie with paul giamatti that i think we're going to be talking about in our upcoming show i hope we will um I haven't seen the movie, but in the preview, the the theme song from the movie, or what appears to be the theme song from the movie, begins to play. I'd never heard it before. And in the same way, the trailer for the movie looks as though, the film looks as though it was shot on like 70s film stock. All of the graphics, you know, to some degree, the style of the acting and and just the presentation of the trailer, all are throwbacks to a different era of, of cinema. It sort of looks antique in a 1970s sense. And the song even though it was made now. And the song is the exact same thing. There's a kind of acoustic guitar, uh, you know, not quite Nick Drake, not quite Cat Stevens, but definitely like heyday of singer song, sensitive male singer-songwriter uh, song comes on. And it's hauntingly beautiful. And I was like, oh my God, ransack the archives, ransack the vaults. There's some other artist in this vein that I've never heard of I can now discover. Lo and behold, like the movie, the song is from 2023. It's called Silver Joy, and it's from the singer-songwriter Damien Gerardo, J-U-R-A-D-O. And if you need a place to land, I'll come down when you are weary. No more clouds to put away in the slumber of the morning. Either of you ever heard of him? No, no. He's been around for God. I mean, not, maybe not twenty, but 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 approaching twenty years. Um, but you know, he's still in his prime and in the sort of central part of his career. He's not a throwback at all, I and mean, he's a creature of the aughts. You know, maybe last ten, twelve years. And um, his music is really wonderful. I think this song, "Silver Joy," is especially like piercingly um, beautiful, and even. My kids, my jaundiced kids are kind of taken with it and love it. So um, anyway, Silver Joy by Damien Gerardo. Love it. Uh, I think it's a beautiful song. All right. Thank you so much, Julia. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Fun show. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Hold up. 